to Elevate Louisiana Engage podcast. Elevate Louisiana was founded earlier this year to empower women leaders throughout Louisiana by connecting and educating them on the challenges impacting our state with data-driven, nonpartisan solutions to make a better future for Louisiana. Hello, I'm your host, Julie Stokes. Today, we're recording the last videocast in a three-part series wrapping up the 2020 Louisiana Legislative Sessions. These three videocasts are a prologue to an interactive webinar on July 24th between the members of Elevate Louisiana and a panel of four women legislators, Senator Beth Mizell, Senator Katrina Jackson, Representative Paula Davis, and Representative Mandy Landry. Elevate's July 24th webinar will be a forum where our members will discuss the sessions and the state of the state with the policy makers themselves so that our civic leaders get more engaged in building a better future for our state. Our guest today is State Representative John Stefanski, who was elected to the State House in 2017, representing Acadia and Lafayette parishes. Representative Stefanski emerged from this year's legislative leadership races with the vice chairmanship of House Ways and Means, which is a great position. He's a lawyer in his regular life at the firm of Edward Stefanski and Zonbrecker, which gave him an interesting view into one of the hottest issues of the 2020 sessions, tort reform, which will be the topic of today's videocast. Welcome, John. Thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, it's, uh, it was an interesting session for sure. No doubt. Well, I read in, in Clancy Dubos uh, is the, the impetus for me giving you a call for this because I read in his winners and losers, and I'm not <laughs> speaking how he phrases it, <laughs> that you had been instrumental in bridging the political divide, really, to get tort reform passed this year. And uh, is often the case in heavily debated bills like this, um, you'll often have the original legislation authored by someone else, only to have the final legislation authored by the speaker. Uh, that was the case this time as well with my friend and, and my senator, uh, Kirk Talbot, who's now a freshman senator um, off of 12 years as a state representative. Uh, he authored the original bill. I happened to be in the Capitol the day that it got vetoed. Um, and I'm just wondering, uh, Representative, how did we get from the Talbot bill through a governor's veto to where we are today with the Speaker's bill, HB 57, being signed into law? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wasn't very involved in, in Kirk's bill. Kirk's a friend. You know, you and I both served with him when he was in the house. And, and ironically, his apartment is just a couple down from mine. And so while he was going through that, and, and really, this is a multi, it was a multi-year effort for Kirk to try to get that bill passed. And he was successful in, in passing it, but of course it got vetoed uh, in, in the regular session. But I wasn't that involved with it. You know, he and I would have discussions and I'd kind of ask him where he was and what are some concepts that he's going through, you know, as a, obviously as an interested legislator who was going to have to vote on it. And also for somebody whose district was very concerned with, with tort reform. And it was one of the issues that uh, I had constituents constantly reaching out to me. Uh, it's supportive of, and so I was, you know, I was, I was curious like any other legislator and tried to keep tabs on everything, but I just really didn't have that much to do with it. Um, ultimately when it got vetoed, uh, we, we figured it was going to get vetoed. And as you saw, it went, once the special session started, there were a lot of bills, a lot of tort reform bills that were filed. And uh, the speakers was one of those. 
Um, before he decided to file it, he, he came to me and a couple other law, uh, lawmakers uh, and asked us if, if we would be interested in filing one or if we would be interested in maybe helping him if he filed one. And, and we coalesced around the idea of, well, if the speaker put his name on something, uh, number one, I thought it gave it a great shot. Um, you know, at that time, we were discussing things about possible veto overrides even, and having the speaker's name on something increased your chances to be able to do that. But more than that, it's just when the speaker or the Senate president puts their name on something, it, it just it carries much more weight than a normal member. And so he decided to do that in, in kind of the consideration of doing that is he said, well, look, I'll file it, but I want you to basically handle the bill. And, and I want you to help me come up with something that can become law. Those were kind of my mar marching orders. Don't just write something, write something that you think can become law that is, that is reasonable. And, and so I kind of took that and, and, and that's, that, that's where it led us, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, I remember that one of the positive pos possible alternatives were that there were going to be all these resolutions and that these resolutions would have to be re-upped re basically every year um, because they would temporarily suspend the law. How, how does something like that work? Yeah, and so I, I think it came from frustration, really. The, the members were frustrated that Kirk's bill was vetoed, um, and they looked for alternatives. And so one of those alternatives, like I talked about, was a possible veto override of the governor, which has only happened, I think, twice in Louisiana's history. Uh, it's not something that's easily accomplished. And, and I think the authors of those resolutions, one, three in the House and three in the Senate, thought it's probably unlikely we can get the votes to do a veto override on, on a tort reform issue. Therefore, what are some of our alternatives? And one of those alternatives is a resolution. As you know, a resolution can't be vetoed. Um, and uh, what the resolutions did is it suspended three areas of our law. It suspended the jury trial threshold. It suspended direct action. Uh, and, and it suspended the bill dealing with the seatbelts. And so those were filed concurrently in the, in the House and in the Senate, but on both sides. And it actually, in the case of the House version, which was uh, authored by Representative Seaball, he actually tied it to the Speaker's bill, to House Bill 57, saying basically it, these resolutions wouldn't go into effect as long as uh, House Bill 57 ended up becoming law. And so, you know, uh, for, from a member, we, you know, we don't like having to use those things. Uh, I don't think any member would. It, set, it does set a bad precedent, I think, because if you, if you don't like the process, we'll then just pass a resolution and you can suspend the law. But at the same time, um, tort reform was an issue that some members, you know, solely ran on. That's the reason they ran. And, mm -hmm. and if not the only reason, it was the dominant reason why they were running and why they were, they got into politics. And so members were frustrated. Members wanted to accomplish something. And so that's why you saw those, you know, ultimately we didn't have to use those. And, and, and that's, that's a good thing. Cause I, I don't, I didn't like the precedent, but at the same time, when you have an important issue like this and you feel Feel like you'll never get the administration on board. It's one of those options that members look to. Okay, so then that that clarifies something. Well, it might. Maybe it was just was it just Representative Seabaugh uh, that had kind of held it ransom somewhat, like saying that you know if you don't do this, then my law is going to be in effect. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I definitely think it was Representative Seabaugh's idea. You know, those uh, those were his. Now, Senator Mills on the Senate side. All 
also filed uh, three as well. He sits on uh, civil on Jude A rather uh, on the Senate side, and so they they filed him on both sides. But but yeah, you know, I, I think Allen probably would tell you he was the one who was spearheading both efforts, and he, I, it certainly was his idea um, because mm -hmm. he approached me early on about those and the possibility of using a resolution in that way if they were if we didn't think we were going to be able to get a bill passed. Well, wait, so did Senator Mills have that same that if the HB 57 wasn't signed, then that resolution would go into effect? I don't know if he tied them to 57. I know Alan on the House side. I'm not sure if Senator Mills actually tied them to the Speaker's bill as well, um, or if he just left them as, as pure resolutions on their own. That's a good question. I'd have to go back and look, but I know certainly on the House side, Alan amended all three on the floor. 257 and you know to my knowledge that's the first time a resolution has ever been used like that you know almost kind of weaponizing the resolution tied to another instrument so definitely interesting uh, a strategy i hope we don't have to go to again um but quite honestly the, i know there's always going to be controversial issues but i don't know if we'll have an issue that dominated you know the election cycle and then dominated two sessions back to back like tort reform has and it just tells us you know that's the you know the constituents were very concerned about it uh and they made their legislators aware of that and and when that happens and when you have an issue that i think when the when the governor's office and the majority of the legislature are see things totally different like that i think it was kind of a perfect storm for for something yeah. like that to happen but luckily like we said we didn't have to use them uh th those resolutions did not make it through the process and uh and we were excited because 57 you know was just signed yesterday um it's 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 meaningful uh definitely from the the point of you know, these are some things people have been working on for 20 to 30 years, you know, uh, the jury trial threshold, trying to get that lower. We were really an outlier when you looked at the rest of the states at $50,000 compared to mo one other state's 15 and then the rest are zero and five, you know, so we're really an outlier in that. And then uh, with our direct action laws, a little unique compared to other states. Um, uh, and then a couple things the, the insurance industry definitely has targeted, which is the seatbelt gag order as they kind of call it which is the you can't uh, admit evidence of a seatbelt and then secondly uh collateral source which is really big for your commercial carriers uh because they're the ones who carry those million dollar two million dollar policies and any benefit you know that they can get to try to reduce some of those costs down are huge in their industry and that's really what collateral source did is it, it limited to the amount that's actually paid by your health insurance issuer and not the amount billed by the medical provider yeah okay and that's one thing that i've heard some pretty conflicting things you know i've heard some people talk about well they're scared with collateral source rules changing that it's going to, it could possibly have an impact on people not being able to collect damages that they still have to pay because maybe an insurance provider would have paid it less expensively. But is there any risk of that? That that not in this bill. Look, and and when you're talking about collateral source, it, there were so many versions. You know, I mean, you go back and look at the way Kirk drafted his bill uh, as it mm -hmm. transformed, and, and Ray Garofalo had a bill, and and uh, new member Richard Nelson had a bill, and all of these members had had different instruments. That some did. You're exactly right. Some actually were a pure cap, no matter if the money was owed or not. Uh, but that's not what the speaker's bill that I worked on ultimately came out to be. It is just a limitation on the bills that your health insurance pays, okay? Health insurance and Medicare. 
Um, and, and so the, the difference there is that when a, when a provider agrees to take that health insurance, okay, most of the time it's done at a discounted rate and they have to agree to take that lower amount. They can't go back to the patient and say, and we want our extra money. Uh, so it just deals with those cases where you had a health insurance issuer uh, and that health insurance applies. It doesn't deal with, with other scenarios to where there might actually legitimately be money owed that that provider is coming out the patient. It doesn't limit those. And, and ultimately, that's kind of what we had to do. You know, collateral source was definitely the toughest hurdle that we had to uh, fix. And ultimately, we had to say, look, let's focus on what other states have fixed. Let's focus on, on some of the more basic issues rather than trying to fix everything. And I think a lot of bills out there, they tried to take really just a, a, a I guess, a holistic view of it and try to fix every single little loophole in our law. Well, the reality is, is I did more and more research and we looked around uh, what other states were doing. No states have figured out how to do that. And so we were trying to fix a problem that no other state has really come up with. And, and, and when, we, when we simplified it a little bit and went back to the core principles, I think ultimately that's why we were successful. Uh, and that's why I think the administration looked at it and decided that they would sign it, you know, uh, because we were, we were, we were taking a basic look at it and a fair look at it and a, and a, a fair resolution of what we were trying to do. Uh, and, and it was hard to argue against that, you know? Yeah. Well, that's what I like to see too. Just reasonable heads prevail and let's do yeah. something that actually makes the state better than just some politicized version of what somebody thinks or a very one-sided approach, you know? So I think that that seems to have happened here yeah and, um, and you know that the speaker and that was and i go back to that you know that was really kind of some of my marching orders from the speaker were, were that he he wanted something that could become law he did and and there were a lot of talking points out of there out there and there were a lot of ideas that people were throwing around around in different versions of the bill but none of those were going to become law in my opinion they had no chance of ever being signed and so if you have a bill that is not going to be signed we go back to okay well could we override it? And, and I don't want to say no or yes on that because I, I think, you know, there's always a chance of that happening. And then, and then there's always a chance of it not happening. But at the same time, why go down that road if we don't have to? And if there's no certainty down that road, let's focus on the certain road. And the certain road is let's find a bill that the governor, we can get the governor agree to sign. Let's, let's yeah. work with the administration and come up with something that they are comfortable with that they can sign. Now that doesn't mean the administration liked the bill. I can, I can promise you they didn't. Um, but uh, I believe we, we worked with them. Um, we, we tried to find that middle ground on some areas that you know, we weren't willing to budge on some areas and they weren't willing to budge on some areas. And so ultimately that's how it, it ended up becoming law. You know, we, we brought everybody to the table. I talked with you know, attorneys on the plaintiff side, on the defense side. I talked to, with insurance agents. I talked with hospitals. I talked with ambulance services. I, I talked with just about anybody I could get that had a vested interest in this to try to get their perspective and, and find something that, okay, well, this is a guaranteed no to you, but you could live with this. And then on the other side, well, this is a guaranteed no, but you could live with this and try to bring all of those elements into the bill. And ultimately, that's how that's how we got it done. You know, is bringing everyone to the table and and trying to bring a coalition together to where maybe doesn't not everyone love the bill, but but no one maybe hates the bill, and 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 which brings good legislation. And that's the impression that I I got as well uh, that you know even though they might not 
the other sides might not love certain parts of it. Everybody's everybody loves it just enough and hates it just enough for it to probably be a good idea. Yeah, what as you, and as you know, that that usually means it's a good piece of legislation. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so one of the things that I noticed that was different from the original Talbot bill to the final speaker's bill was that there was a provision in there for 40% of the loss um, in terms of the collateral source, there could be a 40% variance between what was actually charged and what would be admissible to be repaid. Could you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, you know, that devolved from a couple things. So first of all, uh, when you talk about collateral source and you talk about a putting collateral source into a statute, which is what we did, you know, that all the options that you see out there wanted to limit the amount to the amount that was actually paid by the health insurer. And so there's a difference, obviously, between what's billed and what is paid by the health insurer. And so many of these versions, Kirk's included, all said, well, you're limited to the amount that your health insurance insurer paid. The problem is, is that the injured party has to actually go collect that money. You know, they have to hire a lawyer to collect it, which they have to pay for. And then they have also paid premiums in order to have the benefit of that health insurance coverage. And so one of the administration's really non-starters was there has to be some type of compensation for the person who uses their own health insurance, and then they go and collect it for the insurance company. So there has yeah. to be some type of compensation for the money that they spent to go collect that money. And so that's really where that idea comes from. And so there were multiple versions out there. Kirk's in particular in his final version, I believe was a 1.5 uh, or rather was a, a you, you could get 1.5 years of your health insurance paid. Okay. So the, so your actual premiums paid on your health insurance, you're able to collect up to 1.5 times that amount. And, and that was ultimately what made it in his bill. I saw some other versions that were just multipliers. Hey, we want to take the amount paid and multiply it by a certain amount. Uh, many different other versions. But that was something that I believe in order to even have a chance of getting the governor and the administration on board, you had to have some amount in there to, to compensate to, for collecting that money. So when I sat down and I looked at it, I, I said, you know, I didn't like the idea of a multiplier because in a multiplier in your smaller cases. So look, the vast majority of just your everyday drivers driving on, on the roads in Louisiana have the minimum limits. Okay. Uh, which is $15,000 in Louisiana. So if we just took a pure multiplier, okay. And if you even, if you multiplied it based on the premiums paid where well, you were going to max out those small claims every single time. And then if you said, well, let's just do a multiplier on the actual medical bills. I still thought you were going to get to a situation where on your small claims, which is your everyday drivers trying to reduce their auto insurance claims. I don't think it would have done that because it was going to max out those claims and the policy limits every time. And so what I looked at is let's take a look at the savings. So let's say you have a uh, $10,000 health insurance bill. Okay. That's what the medical provider has billed. And then, but your health insurance issuer paid $4,000. So you have a difference of $6,000 in there. Well, in order to make sure that we save money on every single type of claim, let's look at that percentage. Okay. And then let's allow the judge the discretion to award a percentage of that savings. 
And so ultimately, that's what we decided to do in this case. We said the judge shall award up to 40% of the savings. So you take that $6,000 difference in the example I gave you, and the judge would have the discretion award up to, you know, I think it comes out to about $2,800, 2027, something like that, 40% of, of the six. And uh, in that way, I, I really thought that would be a way we could guarantee a savings no matter what kind of case it was, no matter what kind of policy it was, whether it's a small one or whether it's a really large case, you guarantee that, that the insurance company and the defendant in that case is going to take is going to save at least 60% in all those cases. And so that's really what, what we came up with. It was actually an idea that, you know, I came up with. I sitting sitting trying to draft some of these bills. I thought that was a better option than the multiplier that get, kept getting thrown around and even better than just your premiums. Uh, and, and really because I, I thought it would guarantee savings in, a, in no matter what type of case. And so ultimately that's what the, the bill that was signed. It says these exact words, it says the judge shall award 40% um, in, 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 in all these cases for the cost of procurement. So the costs to go collect that money, but he also shall reduce it if it's unreasonable. And the reason that other language is important is because while the judge may increase that amount uh, above what's paid, that 40%, if it's really unreasonable, let's say the medical bills were really low in a case and the person wasn't really injured that, that badly, 40% uh, could be a windfall to that person. Well, that gives that judge the discretion to be able to drop it back down and not have to award that total amount. So to me, it just made a lot of sense. So ultimately, that's where we ended up. You know, we, we, we ended up in a position to where the judge has the discretion to award up to 40%, but it also can be reduced if it's unreasonable. And, and just made a lot of sense. It was kind of a middle ground to where I think is reasonable, but still has the desired effect that we were looking for, which is to try to drive some of those auto insurance rates down. Yeah. So did you say that it was only for health insurance costs or not health insurance, but the medical related costs? Yeah. And so it's, it's only, it applies to when you use your private health insurance or you use Medicare. Um, it doesn't apply to Medicaid because under our current law, Medicaid is actually already treated this way. Medicaid is already limited by the amount that's actually paid and not billed. And that's all that you can collect. And so we, we didn't have to mess with Medicaid. We just brought the other two in line more closely with kind of really how Medicaid is treated. Well, that's interesting. So, and, and one of the other questions that I wanted to make sure that we talked about because it was something that people kind of went back and forth on. There's no mandatory rate reduction included in this bill. There it isn't. Yeah, and look, I wanted it drafted that way, and, and the speaker agreed with me. Uh, I felt, look, it's very, very difficult to, to tell an insurance company, number one, how much this is going to save, and number two, how much they have to drop their rates by. And I just think that's a that's a difficult kind of rabbit hole to go down. And so I felt it was better to just say, look, we're doing this with the ultimate goal of trying to reduce auto insurance rates. But in these particular areas that we have addressed, we're really trying to pick out why we are outliers uh, compared to other states. So we pick these areas where we're outliers. And look, the hope is, again, the hope is that this will drive down our auto insurance rates. But I, I stopped short of, of promising that or guaranteeing that just because I didn't quite frankly I didn't think it was proper and and there's no and there are no guarantees you know there aren't but the experts are telling us these are the areas that if you address will help with competition which ultimately drives down well well hopefully that'll end up going down that way I can remember one of my first years in the legislature when Ray Garofalo 
um, had a bill to, you know, lower the jury trial threshold. And uh, boy, I mean, it got killed in spectacular fashion. Um, I remember that moment. It was actually Robert Johnson who um, went and tabled it. And it was like, whew, it was heavy at the moment. But uh, one of the things that friends of mine like Pat Connick, who deals in that area you know, of law a lot, um, talked to me about, and I think we addressed here, is that if, he, if we were going to lower the jury trial threshold, that we would also increase our statute of limitations to two years. And we've done that. Were we outliers on the one year there? Well, we didn't. So this bill actually, yeah, didn't include what's called the prescriptive period. Um, and again, that was trying to find a compromise. And and I, we considered putting it in the bill. But what I found is that it, it was not everybody, or rather, it would have been very controversial if we took all torts. So your area of law to where you have done something to another person and you were owed, you know, you were bound to be obligated by what you, with the action that you've caused against another. That's a, a layman's kind of uh, law school definition, but uh, not everybody wanted to make it with all these types of actions. They only wanted to make it with these, uh, with these car accidents, basically. Yeah. So I talked to a lot of lawyers and they were very concerned that if we, if we did them differently, not all torts, not everything to two years, that it would have a negative effect and that we would open the, uh, the profession up to malpractice claims. And so mm -hmm. ultimately I felt that was gonna be a tough sell to make everything two years, which I felt would be the right way to accomplish that. And then again, this was, this was kind of a compromise, you know, and, and the insurance industry and the defense bar really didn't want those two year prescriptive period, you know? And so that was something that they were against. That was more something that I think the the plaintiff's bar was really in support of. And so again, you know, we, we, we compromised in some areas. This was one of those areas that we did as well. Although I think it is the right thing to do. And I, th and I do think it's something that Louisiana needs to take a look at in the years coming up. And because it will drop claims, it will drop lawsuits in Louisiana if you have more time to try to settle some of these things. Um, and so I, I do think it's a smart move. Uh, it's just something that we couldn't fit into this bill, quite frankly. Gotcha. Well, it's really been interesting and really good to talk to you about this and try to understand, like, after all the struggles that I've watched over the last, you know, eight years or so, that it finally, something finally got done in this arena. And uh, I do think it took, you know, some players that really wanted to see a consensus reached because I do get the impression from everybody I talk to that it's not that offensive to anyone <laughs> and a lot of people believe that it's going to help a lot so that is a, a, a good sweet spot to be in and I really appreciate what you did to help um, to help get us there so thank you. It was look it was fun to be a part of the process I was I was honored that the speaker you know wanted wanted me to handle that and and so I took that seriously and and ultimately like I said it, it took a group of people who said we don't want to just we don't want to just fight this year after year we actually want to accomplish something because you know we could have taken that route we could have taken the route of we want everything we're not going to compromise on any of our core issues but then we're facing down probably vetoes for the next four years and that bill never becoming law. And, and ultimately it took people to come together and say, no, look, we, we want to change the system. We want to send a message to other insurance carriers looking to write here. And this is a great first step to send that message. And, and ultimately that's how we got it done. And look, I didn't think it was going to get done. I really didn't. Uh, we went into, 
you know, if you would have asked me Sunday night whether or not we would have addressed collateral source, I would have told you no. You know, we went into these long negotiations where we were just so far apart on collateral source, it, it seemed like it was going to be impossible. We, we found some common ground, you know, on the seatbelt. We found some common ground on direct action, and we found some common ground on the jury trial threshold because we were such an outlier on the on the jury trial threshold uh, that I, I really do think even the administration could agree that it needed to be addressed. Um, but on collateral source, it, it was it was really tough, and and it really is just kind of a funny story. It really wasn't until you know the the speaker and the Senate president kind of decided collateral source is too tough. Let's just leave it out of the bill. So we had actually, it came out of conference, was passed, was concurred with on the Senate side, and then I was bringing it up uh, within a couple minutes uh, to the House side to concur. And actually, uh, Representative Allen Seaball came to me and spotted some language that he thought was would be misinterpreted. I didn't see it that way. I wrote it very consistent with the way the code was, but I could see what he was talking about. And he, he did make sense. I could see how that could be a little confusing to a judge on how he was gonna interpret this one sentence that we had written in there. And so I paused. <laughs> I actually grabbed five or six of the practicing attorneys that I knew uh, on the House floor that knew this area, brought them into a room uh, next to the speaker, I actually brought them into the speaker's office and uh, had each one of them read it and ask them what their interpretations were. And I believe it was five of us and three of the five agreed that it needed to be changed and the two of us thought that it was okay the way it was. And so I told the speaker that. I said, I think we ought to hold off. Um, he did that. He said, let's hold off. I said, give me the night to either rewrite it or do a little more research and make sure this is not an issue. And then in the process of doing that, I, I kind of went back to the, the drawing board on collateral source, um, had conversations with a few other people and ultimately were able to uh, to come up and find a version of collateral source that everybody could live with that night. So it it, it really went into the, the final hours and the last days trying to find something that that we could get everybody on board with. So so that really is that that is amazing because that's not the way it works generally. No. So that really is well. That's about all of the time we have for today. But thank you so much for joining us on Elevate Louisiana's Engage podcast. You know. I'd like to thank our guest, Representative John Stefanski. Uh, we really look forward to watching your career in the legislature. I think you've got a bright future ahead of you. Um, well, I and appreciate the rest it, of Julian. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, and, and we miss you. You know, we do. We, uh, we miss your advocacy and your passion on, on a lot of core issues. So you're, you're very missed, but I'm sure you, are, you have a, a more peaceful, relaxing life now that you're out of the legislature. So I'm <laughs> envious of that. But thanks so much for having me on. This was great. Uh, I enjoyed wow. it. Well, we really appreciate you. And, you know, to those of you out there watching, if you're interested in joining Elevate Louisiana, and want to be part of the interactive webinar on July 24th with our four female legislators, uh, please contact us through social media on Facebook at, at Elevate Louisiana. That's at E-L-L-E-V-A-T-E-L-A or by emailing us at ElevateLA at StokesFlame.com. Our website will go active on August 1st in just a few weeks. Uh, for now, don't forget to like Elevate on all your social media platforms. I'm your host, Julie Stokes, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.